We're going to continue our series on Nehemiah. I'm not going to teach too long this morning. I know Applebee's has got those half-price apps. They're really good. But we should, we should have you out of here by 1230. Um, we're going to finish this morning our series on Nehemiah. So this is the last talk on, on Nehemiah. And we've journeyed through the book throughout the summer and it's okay if you're just coming in new this morning. You're coming in at a good, at a good time. We'll be starting a new series next Sunday. And, and Ben and I have been chatting about, you know, where the Lord has been, and Tom as well, about where the Lord's leading us and what to talk about next. What do we want to journey together next? And we're excited about that. And, um, but we're going to close on our, our time in, in the book of Nehemiah this morning. And it would be a real honor and treat... Uh, for me that we didn't have to read Nehemiah 13 this morning because it, it would have been, it, what would have been really great is if we would have ended, you know, a week before. But we went down to the, the lake and had church at the lake last Sunday. It was great. We bat, for those of you who didn't come with us, we baptized seven people. They gave their lives to Jesus. A couple just right there um, on the beach said, you know, I want to get baptized too. And we baptized them and had a wonderful picnic together. It was just so wonderful to be together. So we didn't do a, a talk on Nehemiah. But the week before we did Nehemiah 12, we looked at Nehemiah 12. And it would have been great if, ne- if Nehemiah only had 12 chapters, because if you remember, Nehemiah 12 is, um, ha- is unfolding, and they're dedicating the wall, and there's this grand celebration. Do you remember Ezra takes one of the choirs on one side of the wall, and Nehemiah takes a choir on the other side of the wall that they've just spent 52 days. The, the, wall goes, the walls around the city of Jerusalem go up, and the choirs, these grand thanksgivings, choirs are on top of the walls and they're processing and they've got instruments and they're singing and and where do they end up? They end up in the middle at the temple. It's this beautiful picture of worship of Yahweh encircling the city as the choirs process and they dedicate the wall of the walls of the city and they end up at the temple. The main focal point is the temple. This would have been huge for Jewish people that they're allowed to they're allowed to participate in animal sacrifices again in, in those days because it's through the shedding of blood, through animal sacrifices, that their family's sins are atoned for. So their family would bring a goat or a sheep, and they bring it to the priest, and the priest would slaughter it. And then on the Day of Atonement, their family's sins for the past year would be atoned for. And so they're really happy that the temple worship is established again with the rebuilding of this wall. The temple is the focal point. We talked about the most holy of holy uh, places and how how special that is. Um, And so it would have been really great if we could have just ended last last chapter with the celebration. Because in Nehemiah 13, what we see happening is that um, the same exact sins that led the Jewish people to be exiled from Israel are starting to creep in. Remember, they, again, the same ones. So they were exiled. The, Israel, uh, the Israelites were exiled for, for 70 years before Nehemiah says, you know, listen, the city is in ruins. It's in rubble. And someone needs to rebuild the wall or it's just going to keep on getting sacked and destroyed. It's really a city that's derelict, that's in, that's in a heap of rubble when Nehemiah steps on 
to the scene. Remember how we compared it to, to the rebuilding and the restoration of the city of Cleveland. We said it's very timely. The things that are happening right now in our city are parallel to the things that are happening in Nehemiah. We're going to talk about curses and blessings in, in this chapter in Nehemiah 13. We're going to talk about how, um, how our God is one who turns curses into blessings. And so we're going to read from Nehemiah 13. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there with me, that'd be great. Or a phone and you want to swipe there. Or if you don't have one, we've got Bibles on the sides of the stage that are yours uh, to keep. We love the Bible. We feel like it's more than a book, that it's alive, that, that when we read it, it's like the words jump off the page and and like God lives in the words. And so when we read, we're, we're reading the very words of God. And so we love the Bible. And many of you have been sharing with me throughout the course of this series that you've enjoyed following along in, in your time with God in the mornings as you've been reading Nehemiah. And I love to hear those stories. I love to hear that there's, there's reading of God's word happening outside of Sunday morning. That you're engaging with God through the context of his word. That's a really healthy thing for us to be doing. It's a good thing to be in the word of God. And that's not to heap guilt on anybody who doesn't. I think God's just happy when we, whenever we crack it. He's like, yay, they want to hear from me. Yay, my kids. He's not like, you should be reading your Bible. That's religion. Okay, on that day, in, in Nehemiah 13, on that day the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Let's pause there for a second. There's a couple things happening here. So the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, and it's being read aloud to the people in assembly. So they're gathered together, maybe like we are, but multiplied over. And that word assembly is an interesting word in the Hebrew it's interesting because the, the Hebrew word for assembly is, this is the only time in the Old Testament when this word is used for assembly. And when the New Testament authors were writing the New Testament, on this side of the cross, they sat down and they said, huh, what does Jesus want his church to look like? And where did they go? The Greek word for um, assembly is ekklesia. And it's synonymous with, or very close to, what the Hebrew word for assembly here is in the Old Testament. And so what that means for you, follower of Jesus, if you claim Jesus as Lord, that you're not just reading a historical narrative, that you're reading a family history do you see the tie between the two? It's the only time that this verbiage is used in the Old Testament. 
What the New Testament authors are saying is that you have a part to play in the story of God, that you are related to what's happening in the Jewish narrative in Nehemiah. And we hinted to that a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the choirs that were uh, processing on top of the walls. We said that you're on that wall. You're part of the choir. You're part of the choir of God whose life has been transformed. If you claim Jesus, that you're on that wall too. Your hands and heart are going to building the wall as well. And so that's why that word assembly is really important. Now, there's a lot of stuff happening here with Balaam and curses and blessings, and we're going to get to that in a moment. In verse 4, before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah writing. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. So what's happening here? Eliashib is the priest, and it's unclear. Most commentators would agree. Most scholars would say that he's got some familial ties with Tobiah. Excuse me. Tobiah, as you remember earlier in the narrative, is the one who is mocking and tearing down the Jews as they're building the wall. Do you remember? Tobiah and his buddy Sanballat are standing at a distance within earshot, and they're saying, these feeble Jews, who do they think they are building, resurrecting the walls of Jerusalem? If even a fox jumped on top of these walls, they would fall down. Who do they think they are? So Tobiah is a voice of distraction in the life of Nehemiah, and he's a voice of distraction and is actually being used by the enemy to distract the people of God from what they're being called to be and to do in the city. And here we see that as Nehemiah has been away, it's unclear how many years. It's, most people would say he's been gone for, t- for 12 years. With Artaxerxes, they build the wall, they dedicate it, and then he goes back to Persia. And while he's away, Eliashib the priest invites Tobiah to live in the temple. What's so wrong with that? What's so wrong with inviting Tobiah to live in the temple? Why is that such... As Nehemiah writes, this evil thing that Eliashab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. What's going on there? As I read it this week, and I 
was listening, I felt like the Holy Spirit was, I, I was sensing that he was saying, well, well, what about you, Eben? Like, where are you, where are you letting Tobias stay rent-free in your heart? Because on this side of the cross, the temple of God, remember the temple of God is the very dwelling place of God's presence. God lives in the temple of God. In in these times, for the Jews, his very presence dwells there. On this side of the cross, the temple of God is our bodies and our minds. Jesus has come to make his home inside of us. And the challenge for us this morning is, who, where, who are the Tobias in our lives? And why are we letting them take up rent in our hearts? Where are we allowing the grapefruit Christianity of America to invade our hearts? Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, because it seems like in America, in the church... We've got, in all of our lives, we've got this compartmentalized view of how life is supposed to work. And that's simply not the way that Jesus sees it. You know, we've got like our little church, you know, grapefruit. So good. Grapefruit's so good though, isn't it? Like you put a little sugar on it and you start, oh man, I love it. Ah, but not good in following Jesus. (laughs) Really good in the mornings for breakfast, not really good for following Jesus. Okay, back on track. So we've got the little space over here, and this is, you know, this is the compartment. This is the grapefruit compartment. You cut it in half, and there you see the grapefruit, and you've got the compartment there for, 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 for God. And, you know, you're like, God, you can have from... 11 to 12.30 on Sunday mornings, and that's, you know, I'm going to give you that. And then you've got your money, and you're like, God, I'm going to give you, you know, this 10% of my income sometimes, and you can have that, like, you know, sometimes. This is that little section. And then there's the, then there's the sex life portion of your life, and you say, you know, God, you can, you can have this part of my marriage, but, but, you know, you can't touch this pornography. That's going to stay. Because I like it and it makes me feel good. You know, we say that to God in not so many words. And then you've got this part of your grapefruit and this is your relationship part. And and this part says like, you know, um, I know what you say to me, Lord, about how I'm to treat my spouse. But, you know, and and that's all well and good, God. But, you know, I I suppose I'm going to keep that to myself as well. I'm going to continue to be passive aggressive to my spouse. And not be kind. We say that to God, don't we? If we were really honest with ourselves, we say, you can have this compartment, but you can't touch this one. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus wants it all. The Belgian theologian once said that there's not one square inch of the corner of the earth where Jesus doesn't claim mine. He wants it all. He wants the whole of your heart. He doesn't just want compartments of your life. He wants to come in and sweep the living room, the kitchen, the entryway room, and yes, even the entertainment room and the basement and closets of our lives clean. He wants it all. Jesus wants it all. 
Why? Because he loves us too much to let the Tobias in our life distract us from the people he's called us to be. He says, I love you too much, son, daughter. I love you too much to let that person take up rent in your head and they don't belong there and hear those lies over your past that you'll never be good enough. You'll never make it. I love you too much to let those stay there any longer. I want to I come in and sweep the rooms clean. So Tobiah was taking up rent and space in the temple of God. And there are articles that go in, into the temple that have ceremonial meaning to the Jews in the temple. And these would include grain offerings. They would in, include new wine Oil to anoint new priests and anoint um, Levites. And they would include the Ark of the Covenant, which has manna in it, you know, and all of this. There are special articles that are in the temple. And what happens here is that um, Tobiah gets tossed out of the temple, as he should be. And this is great leadership here from Nehemiah, isn't it? Nehemiah is a type of Jesus. So if you look back on the life of Nehemiah, you are seeing a foreshadow. You're seeing a taste of who Jesus is. So Jesus always leads perfectly. He's just the best leader. He's the perfect leader. He's the most brilliant. He's the most strategical. He's the most filled with joy. He's the most beautiful leader there ever will be. But Nehemiah displays something of great leadership here. What does Nehemiah do when he sees the, he comes back after 12 years, says he's displeased. He comes back, sees Tobiah living in the temple. He's just like, oh, great, you guys. This is really good that he's living here. And man, this is awesome. Like, maybe he might want to, no, he's like, get out. Get out. You're out of here. But he, he doesn't stop there. And I want to draw your attention to a really important verse here. When he throws Tobiah out, as he should. In verse 8, I was greatly displeased. He throws him out. And then in verse 9, he says, I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. And as I read that this week, I felt, I sensed like, isn't that just like Jesus? You know, he's, he's just so much, he's so much more, he, he's about so much more than just sin avoidance. This is why Nehemiah is like a type of Jesus. He doesn't just sweep the house clean. He doesn't, he doesn't just come in and, and, and give you freedom, give you hope, and then he's like, peace out. You know, I'm done. I'm done. My work's done here. See you later. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just throw out the bad stuff. But our God in Jesus is one who restores and redeems, and we see that he puts back the articles of the temple. And your life, this could look like any number of different ways. Where, for example, you could have been addicted to drugs for 10, 15, 20 years. 
He doesn't, Jesus doesn't just sweep the house clean and rid you of that addiction, does he? He gives you joy in those places to fill you with new joy and then enables you to offer the freedom that he's given you that used to be enslaved to drugs to other people. He redeems, he puts back the articles of the temple. Specifically, this goes even deeper. The articles of the temple, two of those, for illustration's sake, are the new wine, which we talked about. It symbolizes joy. And also the oil that was anointed on the Levites as they went to perform their duties. The oil representing the mercy and the grace and compassion of God. Oil and wine. You see, God wants to put back in our lives. He doesn't just take things out of our lives. Then he replaces them with something good and even better. He saves the best for last always. And that's just like who Jesus is. He cleans house. And then he says, I love you too much to just keep it vacant. I'm going to then put stuff in there that's going to make you fulfilled and make you and, and satisfy you. You know, with the joy of new wine in the mercy of the, uh, the oil of mercy that I pour in your life to overflowing so that you can give that away. It's so good. A lot of this looks similar to how Jesus walks into the temple and he, he starts clearing tables. Do you remember? He starts turning over tables. He starts turning over tables. Why? Because he says that my father's house has, is not to be used as a, as a marketplace to sell your things, to sell your goods. It's really hot in here right now. Is it not? Yeah. Super hot. Is, can we turn on the air or something? It's like really, we're, it's going to be like a southern church. We'll have, we'll have fans. <laughs> there you go. Okay, we're, okay so uh, yeah, super duper hot. Um, okay, so I totally, there it goes. I heard it. That was so good. Okay, so Jesus is turning over temples or turning over tables in the temple. And it's very similar. It's very reminiscent to what Nehemiah is experiencing here. And we would say that Jesus is right in doing this. It's sometimes tougher, a tougher leap to make when we say that Nehemiah is right in doing this. I don't want to stay there too long. He turns over tables. Okay, let's read on. Let's move on. Uh, I also learned that the portions as assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. What's going on there? The Levites and singers ain't getting paid. Not much different in today's culture, is it? All joking aside, what's going on is that they're supposed to be paid from tithes and contributions from mostly wealthy and noble people, and they've ceased to do that. So each Levite or people who would work for the temple would have their own like little garden or fields things happening, and so they had to go back to working that. 
So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grains, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. So he's so Nehemiah is bringing reform, just as Jesus does. Um, in that verse 11, when he said, So I rebuke the officials and ask them. It's a really kind way that the NIV puts it. What's really, so when he's saying, I rebuke them, what's really happening is that, it, like in the Hebrew, is that it's, a, it's like a courtroom. So he's bringing up charges against these nobles and these powerful um, people influentially. And he's saying, that's not right, and that's not just what you're doing. They should be compensated for what they're doing. We, we need to take care of the Levites. And so that happens. And then replaces tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the store, storerooms. Verse 13, I put uh, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They, made they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Verse 14, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. So Nehemiah comes back after all these years, and verse 14 is in interesting because he says, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have done so faithfully, so faithfully done. The Hebrew word here for faithfully done is hesed. And hesed is normally not attributed to men or women. Normally where it's used is only in reference to God. God is full of hesed. What hesed means is like the ever-loving, forever and ever kind of love, compassion, mercy towards people. And Nehemiah is saying, listen, God, remember me. I have, no, I have no children to remember what I've done. I, I did this because I love you. Remember, remember me for that, God. It goes on to talk about the Sabbath and how the Jews began to ignore the Sabbath. They started to buy and sell um, fish and goods on the Sabbath. That's a no-no. Again, it's like the beginning of what put them in exile in the first place 70 years ago. And Nehemiah sees this. But I want to end with going back to verse 1 today. Because I just, my heart just blew up this week. Verse 1 and 2. Because they had not met, the Ammonites and Moabites were kicked out. Now what, okay, context. What is not happening here is a racial thing. They're not, they're not saying, because you are foreign, you cannot be a part of the assembly of God. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interreligious thing. So what's happening is because of the foreign gods you serve, because you're teaching your children in the ways of these foreign gods, that's the reason. It's not a racial thing, what's happening here. Side note. Be verse 2, Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. And then this is the goods right here. This is the goods. 
it, that parenthetical citing there. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. And my heart just blew up this week when I read that. I just stayed there for like three days. It's like, ah, oh, so good. Because that's who our God is. He's the God who turns curses into blessings. And what they're referring to here, there's some names that are running around there. Balaam, to call a curse down on them. What they're referring to is the book of Deuteronomy and Balaam. Balaam was like this prophet. For those of you who might be familiar, he's the one whose his donkey is talking to him. Right? Do you remember? Balaam's donkey is talking to him. And... Um, What happens in the story is that a foreign king hires Balaam to call curses down on the Jewish people. That's the context. And Balaam says, okay, I'll do it. The price is right. Everybody's got a price. (laughs) And so Balaam gets to the plateau, and he's overlooking the camp of the Jewish people. And he goes to pronounce a curse over the Jewish people, his own people. And as he goes to pronounce this curse in the name of God over the people of Israel, what comes out of his mouth? A blessing instead. The Holy Spirit is like this. Okay, so as he's, it's like he's talking and he's like, blah, blah, I want to curse the people and, and, take, and pick up a check. I want to pick up my check. But all that's coming out is blessing. Isn't this wonderful? Let's talk about curses and blessings for a second, shall we? Do you know that the, that the exact Okay, Some, Okay. Jesus is so good. Jesus is so powerful. I'm going to preach. Jesus is so good and so powerful that he will turn the cursed things of your life into blessings that will bring life to other people. Wasn't it in the book of Galatians that Paul writes, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on the tree to become a curse for you and for me. So when the Father looks across the table of mediation, he sees favor and blessing only because why? Jesus became the curse so that you might be blessed. Jesus it was cursed because he hung on the tree. Wasn't it in Genesis, in in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says, what you, what you intended for harm to me, God turned into good. That's just like Yahweh. That's just like Jesus to take the things that people intend for harm over your life and turn it into something good. That's how powerful Jesus is. You can't stop the compassion of Jesus. You're going to threaten me with what? My life? Death is swallowed up in the, victory of the, in the victory of Jesus. The grave is swallowed up. So even whether I live or whether I die, doesn't Paul say, 
To Christ be the glory. Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. He became the curse for us so that we might be the blessing to others. And that's good news. That's really good news for us this morning. Because how, how many areas do we let curses hang around in our heads, in our hearts? Every day. We believe that we're, who, we're, who we used to be before you came into relationship with Jesus. And you still see yourself that way sometimes, don't you? I'm saying this to you because I'm human too. I'm not just the floating head on the stage. I'm insecure too. I have places of insecurity in my heart where the, where the enemy would seek to usher in fear and insecurity. But how good is Jesus where he's saying that because, because I've ushered in, didn't the writer of Hebrews call him the new and living way? It's a new way to live. You carry something different on the inside of you now. You're no longer who you used to be. If you, cl- if you claim Jesus as Lord, if the good news has gotten deep enough in your heart, doesn't Paul say that he's making all things new? He's every, Everything is bottlenecking to Jesus. There's one end to the story, and it's not the curse. The curse was prophesied in Genesis 3. Re- remember that one day, One day that there would come one stronger than Adam who would crush the head of the serpent. And one day in Genesis 3 we read, one day that no longer will the curse hold any power over people. We're free in Jesus' name because of the cross, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're free Don't you want that kind of freedom on the inside to shift the culture of a city around you? It's not because you're so strong and it's not the false humility thing of saying, oh, it was all God. I had nothing to do with it. Are you tired of that too? You had something to do with it. Don't you want, this is what I want. I want people to look in on Vineyard Cleveland and saying, those people could not have done that. It was only God, all of us, All of God in all of us, Christ in you, the hope of glory, you have something to do with the restoration of the city, the restoration of Cleveland. Why not now? Why not now? Why not you? The hope of the city is not sitting in the chair next to you. The hope for the city, the hope that the city needs is in the person of Jesus, and and Jesus resides in your chest. The hope that the city needs is sitting right there in your chair. Right there in your chair. You supply the destiny of the city. You have a part to play. You're part of the choir. You're on that wall with Ezra and Nehemiah. So that the curse no longer plays itself out. So that the heroin and fentanyl epidemic stops. 
We say, no longer, you're not. See, what, what Jesus is saying as the God who turns curses into blessings is that you are no longer, I don't see you, home, the homeless man who walks by at Market Square Park on 25th Street by our Healing on the Streets team. I don't see you as smelly. I don't see you as ugly. I, see, I don't see you as homeless. That's the way the world sees you. That's the way the curse sees you. That's the way you're under the curse. I see you as son. I see you as daughter, the heroin epidemic. I don't see you as addicted. I see you as hungry for something that can only be satisfied in the person of Jesus. Why don't you join me in standing?